fast fashion. And more than likely, we're all guilty of contributing to fast fashion in some way. Maybe you're trying to be a little bit more mindful about the things that you're purchasing. But I mean, it is uh, it, it dominates so much of what it is that we buy. It's marketed to us. It's made very available. It's sometimes almost harder to to avoid it, even if you're trying to. And we're going to talk about some of the repercussions to fast fashion, what it does for exploiting those that work in it, for the uh, environment, uh, and why, maybe why we should be a little bit more aware of it and try to steer away from it. Our guest is a clinical associate professor of liberal studies at New York University. Dina Siddiqui is joining the show. Dina, thanks so much for making the time. Really appreciate this. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Fast fashion is something that I think we're sort of becoming more aware of. There seems to be this movement, especially amongst younger people, mm-hmm. you know, that, that really want to be more conscious of the things that they're buying and purchase items that are more sustainable. Thrifting, consigning is so popular mm-hmm. right now. But fast fashion is still a, an absolute giant, isn't it, Dina? Right, that's very true. I think it's great to tend toward the trend towards thrifting, consigning. I wonder how long it will last if it's just going to be a fad or something. It, if it'll be something that brings a longer term change. But I think it's, it's thrifting can only go so far. You know, we do need there's a much larger uh, market there, and one of the problems is that it's not simply. Fast fashion is one node in a larger structure of producing clothes globally, right? So um, it's not it, 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 when, even when you're talking about luxury brand brands, the same problems remain about production and how the people who are making your clothes are at the very their racialized labor at the and gendered at the very bottom of a complex supply chain, and the whole model runs on. Um, whether it's fast fashion or luxury goods, runs on extracting their labor labor to the maximum to uh, to maximize profits for the big brands and to a certain extent for the companies, um, for the factory owners in places like Bangladesh, which, by the way, is a place I'm very familiar with. And I want to say, actually, this month is the 10th anniversary of the collapse of this building called Rana Plaza, which housed five garment factories, which was producing mostly fast fashion garments. But I think um, it's good to remember that that's partly why this conversation has turned back to what we can do to change the structure of the system. And I'm very happy to talk about it. But I think thrifting is a very individualized kind of endeavor in the end. And what we need is to understand the systemic issues and chip away at the systemic issues. Which is what I want to talk to you about and try to get some clarity on today. I mean, I think mm-hmm. I think most people sort of have an idea of, you know, mm-hmm. what what uh, a sweatshop might look like. And, you know, we mm-hmm. kind of understand as a society that, yeah, they they are prevalent and, and they're, they're producing a lot of the garments and, and items that we purchase regularly. Mm-hmm. But it seems it seems to at least to me that the idea of these places is that they're far away, and so therefore it's a problem mm-hmm. you actually can't really tackle or do much about. Mm-hmm. Is that is that fair? 
I think um, that's where I really think uh, the way the story is told or why the general accounts are actually really both problematic and very, they leave out key details. These places are very far away, but the conditions under which women work in these places are actually directly related to what's happening um, elsewhere to the larger global supply chain, if you will. So let me give you an example of how one, you know, of why it's actually a very intimate relationship between the so-called or a very entangled relationship between the global and the local and these places, as you say. For instance, um, when the Rana Plaza building um, showed cracks, it was a building that had five factories and a bank and many other stores. Everybody closed down when the cracks appeared. Everybody closed shop, except for the garment factories, which felt they had to keep going because the managers and the owner, management and the owner, had a major international deadline they had to meet. They were worried if they didn't meet the deadline, they would make losses that the company, the brand for which the brands for which they were making the goods, would simply reject the goods or pay much lower than they would have done otherwise. So they, at the risk of many things, they kept this thing open, the factories open. The workers went in because, again, the factories were open and they um, they wanted to, they, they were threatened with being um, fired or not being paid if they didn't show up. So they were coerced, but their coercion is related to the way in which the global supply chain works, in which the brands have tremendous power totally along the supply chain. And the factory owners in places like Bangladesh have some power, but whatever they have, they, you know, in the end, it's the garment workers, factory workers themselves who have to pay for um, the way in which the system is working. And I think, can you make a difference? There are ways, they're complicated. The one thing I will say is two things. One is there are no easy solutions, but remember that what happens there is intricately related to what's happening here. It's not simply about bad local culture. The problem is not just a national problem. It's an international problem and it needs international solutions. But the one thing that I think we should not do is never say, and again, I'm going to talk about Bangladesh, which is what I'm most familiar with, is to not say, I won't buy from Bangladesh. Workers need these jobs. Refusing to buy something that's supposedly made in a sweatshop, made in Bangladesh, does not help the workers. What does help the workers is putting pressure on the bans brands, but not on individual brands. It's very hard work. There are no simple solutions. But I don't, you know, it's really important to remember that what happens there is being in a place like Bangladesh is being determined in a boardroom somewhere in the United States or in some trade agreement that's been made um, at the WTO or whatever else has replaced it right now because brands get away with murder basically as we saw during the pandemic and you mentioned, and as we saw during Rana Plaza and you mentioned Rana Plaza and I want to I want to highlight the fact that you you speak about there being cracks in the building uh, but those garment workers being forced to go to work or at least feeling some sense of, of force 
And right. when that collapse happened, it killed 1,124 people mm-hmm. and injured at least 2,500 more. So just to give some perspective mm-hmm. about what that that collapse really yeah. did to human life. Dina, I want to keep talking about this with you and get some more perspective from you. Obviously, you know a lot about this, but we do just have to take a short break. So if you'll just hang on the line, Absolutely. we're going to come right back into this conversation. I'll be here. <laughs> talking about fast fashion and why garment workers' lives are still in danger 10 years after the Rana Plaza collapse in Bangladesh. Dina Siddiqui is a clinical associate professor of liberal studies at New York University. Chelsea Anchad will be right back in three minutes. Fast fashion and what garment workers' lives look like in that industry. Our guest is clinical associate professor of liberal studies at New York University, Dina Siddiqui. Dina, thank you so much for sticking around on hold. Really value your time. Absolutely. No, no. So, My pleasure. Dina, we're talking a little bit about the fast fashion industry and you know what those conditions look like for those workers, but I wonder if you can help uh, sort of paint a picture of who some of those workers are because this mm-hmm. industry really exploits women to a very large mm-hmm. degree, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes, these are um, young women who are between the ages of 18 to 30, about, you know, in Bangladesh, actually, a lot of them are married. Classically, in most other countries, they tend to be young and unmarried for the most part. But these are young women. Um, the rise of the industry and uh, a certain kind of dispossession in the Bangladeshi countryside happened uh, in rural areas happened at the same time basically agricultural jobs dried out there was no investment there was structural adjustment Um, there was a lot of pressure on Bangladesh to have export processing zones or special economic zones and because in a sense um, there was nothing left in the countryside these young women became a a labor force that just came into almost, you know, this labor force was produced, the factories were there when the women needed the jobs, when the men weren't getting the jobs, actually. So these are young women who are now supporting their families as well, their children, their parents, sometimes even their husbands. And because it's such a lopsided kind of development, there's also... um, there's a lot of male unemployment and females working, so that also has some interesting tensions in everyday life that we can talk about. But these are women who work very, very hard, who have been trained into a certain kind of industrial labor and industrial discipline, but who also have the kind of double burden you would expect. They have to do the cooking and the you know, making sure the children go to school, whatever. But it's their incomes that makes gives the children education and keeps the health care of the family going. So this is a really important labor force in Bangladesh. Um, and I don't know if that answers your question. Is it is it an income that is um, even even one that can help sustain life or are many of these women working at many of these different factories just to try to make ends meet because my understanding of it is that it's 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 mm. right next to to slavery in a lot of cases okay right a lot of people so their working conditions really do vary and the larger factories they're, they're, here is the thing the larger factories don't 
have more financial viability so they don't suddenly close down. They are able to pay their workers. Most workers do not get living wages. That's the biggest struggle right now. You're absolutely right. I wouldn't call that slavery. I'm very careful about that word because it connotes a certain kind of relationship that's not there. Mm. Um, The working conditions are the three main things that I think uh, one should keep in mind is one, they do not get living wages. And you saw what happened when the, during the pandemic. These women would probably just about make enough to um, pay their rent and pay their school, and school fees and get, you know, but they were also had debts at stores and things. But once the pandemic happened and brands just basically abandoned places like Bangladesh, you know, the factories then could not pay their workers. The workers had no um, back, no savings to fall back on because the whole model of the industry, as I said, is that it's to extract as much labor as possible and take the profits out. So it's not surprising that the workers don't have labor. The second, the savings, the second thing that I think is uniform across the industry is that very often workers do not get paid on time. And that is very difficult. And that happens because, again, because of the global structure of, uh, and that is not about local conditions, but Bangladeshi factory owners have to, uh, they get a lot of subsidies from the government, I will say. So I'm not actually feeling bad for them. But the way it works is they have to borrow the money to buy the raw materials, to make the product, to have the product shipped. And once the product is delivered, then the brands pay them. Mm. So they can't pay their workers until the brands pay them. And so not being paid. And for smaller factories, if they don't get paid on time, very often they'll take the easy way out and just close their factories without having paid their workers and just disappear. Gina, thank you. That's... Thank you so much for sharing your expertise on this. I know that we could keep this conversation going, but sorry, unfortunately, yes. that's and all I'm the time. Sorry, I could go on forever. I know I love you your passion. I think this is such an interesting area to keep talking about, and I hope that we can have you uh, lend your voice to this subject again. But that is unfortunately all the time that we have. So thank you so much I'm for giving sorry, it to us. Sorry, but thank you. I <laughs> hope I didn't talk too much. But no, take no. care. It was great to. It was always. It's always good for me to air this. Of share course. this. Okay. Gina, thanks so much. Take care. Dina Siddiqui is Clinical Associate Professor of Liberal Studies at New York University talking about the complexities to do with the fast fashion industry.